Daniel 1 verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. Amen. RT, God bless you. Welcome, Dr. R.T. Kendall. He likes to be introduced. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard, received and applied as you intend. And cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent vessel to say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Let this be a life-changing word. And a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many people in this world get to live where they would not have chosen, but they are happy? How many of you get to work and, and do things that you would have not chosen to do, but you're happy. How many of you get to be with people you would not have chosen to be with, but you're happy? Does this describe you? Well, then be very thankful. Be very grateful that that is your case. And to be honest with you, that's me. That's Louise and me. We're, we're so blessed. We never dreamed we would come to England. We didn't choose to live here, came to get more education, and then stayed. And then in the last uh, few years, Colin Dyes very kindly invited us back year after year. And, and we, we just have to pinch ourselves all the time. Uh, and we're blessed. And, and this very week, I can tell you, uh, arguably, I've been given the greatest offer ever in, in my life. Uh, 
TBN, Trinical, uh, Trinity, Trinical, Trinical, Trinity, Trinical. First mistake I've ever made. Trinity Broadcasting Network, UK, have invited me to come there and preach all I want to, all I want, and they'll send it all over the world. I've never had an offer like that. And so when I consider these are things we didn't choose, we didn't hint for, work up, never enter our minds, and God has just done it, and we're so grateful. If you're like that, think about those who are not like you. Because I now want to ask how many of you are living where you would not have chosen to live and you're very unhappy. Are there those here today having to work where you would not have chosen and you hate it? How many here are having to study things? Or be with people you would not have chosen to spend time with. You don't like anything about it. You hate going to work. You hate going home. You have few friends. You've been fed up for a long time. But no change seems to be forthcoming. This message is tailor-made for you. We're looking at Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to see about four men chosen from the privileged class of Jerusalem. They're forced to live where they would never, never have chosen. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The latter three, this is the name given to them. They came to be in Babylon before the first deportation of the Israelites in 597 B.C. Jeremiah the prophet had warned of the coming Babylonian captivity. Nobody believed him. He was accused of treason because he said, Jerusalem will be taken. And all the Israelis said, not possible. Jerusalem is the apple of God's eye. We are secure. Jeremiah, you are guilty of treason. How dare you say this? Well, it turns out, Jeremiah was right. And he was vindicated. Not that he wanted to be. But it turned out he was so right. And it's interesting to me. Do you know, there are people that feel that way about the nation, land of Israel today. I have fellow Americans who say Israel is the most secure place in the world because God's chosen people never can anything happen to Israel. Now that said, if I'm totally honest with you, I do believe that the blindness on Israel will be lifted before the second coming. I think in the coming midnight cry. I do believe that will happen. But I have to say. If you examine Romans chapter 11 carefully. It says that God is able to graft his ancient people into the olive tree. Doesn't say it will categorically happen. No guarantee. And some months ago. You might like to know, I wrote a letter 
to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, said virtually this to him. I cautioned him. He's got friends, I happen to know, that tell him, don't worry about Israel. Don't worry about the Jews. In fact, he's even told that Jews get a second chance. And this is so wrong. And I said to the Prime Minister, God will not start defending you and fighting your battles like he did in ancient times until Israel recognizes Jesus Christ as their Messiah. I don't know that that blessed him, that I said that to him. His office acknowledged that they received the letter. But here's the thing. There are those who have the idea that they are invulnerable. And Jeremiah said, the captivity is coming. It will come. And he was right. Well, now, here's the situation we have in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the new names given to them, uh, were part of the Jerusalem aristocracy. And they have been taken to Babylon, which is Iraq today. Taking these men weakened the forces in Israel. We call it the brain drain. When the best of the scientists, engineers, doctors, leave their country for a better place. But this was different. These four men were not leaving for a better place. They were forced to go to a worse place. They're having to be useful in Babylon. They were brought to the royal court in Babylon, living where they would not have chosen to live, having to learn things they did not want to learn. They had to be with people they had nothing in common with, do things they never wanted to do. They were chosen partly on the basis of their looks, physical stature, and intelligence. In other words, they were unlucky to be good-looking or to be clever. Sometimes it can be a blessing not to be so good-looking. How does that make you feel? <laughs> or to be so clever. Because there are those, because they're clever, good-looking, they're noticed, and that's what happened to these four men. I think of those that might be in the congregation today uh, that could have been chosen like these four. I think Colin would have been. He's good-looking. <laughs> He's clever. Gabriel, you would have been safe as in your mother's arms. <laughs> they would not have taken you. <laughs> Maybe you're clever, but with that face... These four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were passive victims of a former generation's disobedience. Israel was under the judgment of God, as the church is today, in my opinion. Well, God had not forsaken Israel or his church today. Jeremiah prophesied 
The captivity was coming, but he also added it will last 70 years. And that one day the people would return to their land. Now, the events described in the book of Daniel took place during these 70 years. And that is what the first chapter talks about. I plan to go through the book of Daniel a little bit. Uh, next week, we're going to look at chapter 3. Down the road, we'll look at chapter 5 and eventually Daniel chapter 6. And so today, we look at Daniel chapter 1. And we see the arrival of these four men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were forced to live in a country, climate, culture, not their own. And what you have there throughout this book, and it's, it's thrilling, a demonstration how God protects his own and vindicates them. And the, the, the theme of today and over these times that I'm back with you to deal with the book of Daniel will be the subject of vindication. I wonder if there's somebody here, you're longing for vindication. You want your name cleared. You've been falsely accused. People believe the false accusation and it hurts. And you're craving, dying inside Oh, to be vindicated. Well, the book of Daniel is a demonstration of vindication. Now God comes to the rescue of those who will stand up and be counted, especially as we look next week when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are threatened with a burning, fiery furnace if they don't bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. In any case, these men would in the end be vindicated and exalted. It has to be said that these four men were caught in between the imperialism of Babylon and the claims of their God, the God of Israel. It shows also how God can place his people in strategic places of influence and power and what their responsibility is when that takes place. Therefore, it shows how the church can be under judgment, and yet God will select certain individuals who may see God work powerfully indeed as we wait for the next move of God on the earth. Well, now, I want us to look at these four men. What do we know about them? The first thing is they were valuable men. They were of the Judean aristocracy, had the best backgrounds, opportunities, best education. How do you explain their gifts? Well, the answer is they were the object of what we call common grace. Now, that was the theme partly last Friday night in our School of Theology, common grace. It's a subject that some know almost nothing about. It explains God's goodness to the whole of creation. Every person that ever lives has been touched by a certain grace, has nothing to do with salvation. But all humankind have been blessed in measure with what is called common grace, not because it's ordinary, 
but because it's given commonly to everybody. There's no one without it. All of you have been blessed with a certain measure of common grace. Uh, it has to do uh, not at all with being saved, but your natural gifts, your IQ, your talents, even your appearance, all this. God gave this to you. Your becoming a Christian uh, doesn't improve your looks. Your becoming a Christian uh, doesn't really improve your talent. You may say, well, it's been that way with me. I'm, I'm smarter than I used to be. or I can play an instrument better than ever. I understand that. But the truth is, even if you weren't a Christian, you would have that gift. And that said, but I think yours would be comparatively useless in the church unless God has control of your life. All right. That's the first thing. They were valuable men. And be aware of the fact that God gives this grace to everybody. But it also needs to be said that it's ordinary people that are converted. It's a mystery. You would have thought that God would want to look out for his name by choosing Geniuses, clever people, those that will make his name look good by their stature. God's not interested in that at all. As a matter of fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, you see your calling that not many mighty, that's the Donald Trumps of this world, not many noble, that's aristocracy, royals are called. And so if you are born to privilege, aristocracy, it's not good. But the chances are you will be passed by. That's just the way it is. So be thankful that you're not royal. Be thankful that you're not mighty. We're all ordinary people. Do you realize that? We're all, we all have this in common. I want you to look at the person next to you right now and say to them, you are ordinary. Say it. <laughs> Say, we've all got that in common. Now, do you feel insulted that I said that you're ordinary? <laughs> now, once in a while, you could say once in a blue moon. God will choose to save a St. Augustine, a Saul of Tarsus, a Thomas Aquinas, a Martin Luther, a John Calvin, a Jonathan Edwards. Once in a while, God will give a genius to the church, and it's, we're blessed by this. And we thank God for them, the high watermarks in church history. But by and large... His elect are made up of people like you and me. All right. But valuable men we are. That said, these four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were victimized men. They were victims. They did not ask to be there. Do we have anybody like that here? 
Are you a person who has been victimized? Do you feel rejected? Have you grown up with a sense of rejection because of something in your childhood or something your parents said to you? Do you know what it is to be lied about? And everybody believes the lie. You're a victim. It's not fair. Have you been robbed? Have you been abused? Perhaps abused as a child. Have you been raped? You're a victim. Well, these four men were victimized men. They had to learn what they never wanted to learn. So what we learn is this, that some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And so they had to learn what they never wanted to learn. They were not the slightest bit interested in learning the culture of Babylon, the literature of Babylon. Much less did they want to learn the language, a new language. But they're forced to. Some of you have been forced to learn English. Joseph, carried to Egypt, had to learn Egyptian. Moses, however, brought up in Egypt, was learned and wise in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. But you see, having to learn a new culture, a new language, and they're given new names. How would you like it if they change your name? And they say, from now on, you will be known, not in the name that you've been used to, Hananiah. Your name is Shadrach. What a name. Would you like that? I've just got a new name, Shadrach. Yours will be Meshach. Thanks a lot. And you, my friend, Abednego. We all like our names. We, we like what we're used to being called. Would you believe when I first came to England, Louise and I and the children Moved, and I go in to see my supervisor at Oxford the first day. And you know the first thing he said to me? First thing. May I call you Robert? No. <laughs> well, uh, your name is Robert. True, Robert Tillman Kendall. We don't like initials over here. I wish since I've thought of telling him about J.R. They all watch Dallas. <laughs> and you've heard more recently about O.J., which shows people of the highest reputation, are, they go by their initials. But my father named me after his favorite preacher, R.T. Williams. I've known nothing but R.T. all my life. And now he says to me, and, and I'm in a foreign country, we want to call you Robert and I never got used to it, ever. <laughs> Don't call me Robert, Bruce. 
We get used to certain names. It's what, what I know. We're all like that. And so here they are, the lack of familiarity with the culture. It's all different. And now they've got to go by different names. <laughs> by the way, Dr. White, uh, my supervisor, three years later after I've uh, accepted to be the minister at Westminster Chapel, he comes to hear me. Comes back in the vestry and he says, Robert, don't you think you should call me Barry? Dr. B.R. White. I knew his name was Barrington. They call him Barry. I didn't have the courage to say, well, don't think you think you should call me R.T. I didn't. He still calls me Robert. But don't you. You see, they had to learn a new culture, a new name, and the stigma of being foreign. You know, we all have our national, racial, and religious pre prejudices, cultural. And by the way, I'm not English. Does that surprise you? And I'll never forget the shock I got the first day we landed in Oxford. And I go into W.H. Smith, and I asked for a newspaper. When they heard my accent, I could see they completely changed. I told that to a Canadian, and he says, tell them you're Canadian. <laughs> it works. <laughs> oh, I treated all the, oh, when they, oh, you're Canadian. Oh, welcome. <laughs> Explain that to me. Do you know about the British comedy duo in the 50s and 60s, Flanders and Swan? You talk about English bias. Listen to this. Hey, this is their poem. I'm not making this up. It's not that they're wicked or naturally bad. It's knowing they are foreign that makes them so mad. The English, the English, the English are best. I wouldn't give a tuppence for all the rest. That's just to let you know what you're in for when you live in this country. <laughs> Will all English people please stand? <laughs> <laughs> they were valuable men. They were victimized men. Third, they were virtuous men. They had personal convictions. Listen to this. Verse 8. They said... They resolved, and Daniel took the lead, not to defile themselves with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And so this was what they wanted. Well, whatever do you suppose the royal food was? I wondered about this. Was it caviar? Smoked salmon? Chicken tikka? Crispy duck? Chicken tikka masala? Bindi bhaji? Brinjal bhaji? These are my favorite foods. If that had been on the royal table, I'm not sure I would have been very Jewish. <laughs> and for all I know, they were tempted by the king's food. And for all I know, this was something that they wanted to eat. You see... Nothing is said about whether they would not enjoy the king's food. 
But the king's food would have been inconsistent with the Levitical laws, however tasteless. These men were not going to go against their teachings. Interesting. They accepted the cultural change, the climate change, even their names being changed. But they now drew the line. They asked for a diet change. And so Daniel's request, as the AV puts it, authorized version, it was for pulse and water. Probably the first recorded high fiber diet. Very healthy. But no doubt it was just vegetables they wanted. They wanted water and vegetables. Uh, and certainly that's what they were doing. They, were, they became vegetarians. Which interestingly enough, the Levitical law isn't. You can eat meat. You have to eat meat under the Levitical law. But they didn't trust the king's meat. It wasn't kosher. But they would eat vegetables and water. They wanted to be true to themselves because this was part of their identity. In a foreign country, Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. And they were doing that. And it takes a lot of courage to be yourself plus God. Because we all, in a sense, are in a foreign country. Are you aware of this? Do you know what Paul said? Our citizenship is in heaven. And so everything here is foreign to us. And we must have the courage to be ourselves on this planet until we go to heaven. Here's a verse that I think, personally, every Christian should memorize. And I would go further and say, the first verse a Christian should memorize is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And by the way, when I think about memorizing Scripture, it's not done anymore, is it? It's perished from the earth. Do you know anybody that memorizes Scripture? I know one lady, 80 years old. Listen to this. Dr. Marilyn Hickey. She's a friend of mine. Last year, you ready for this? She memorized 1 Corinthians. 15 chapters, 16 chapters. Every word. Memorized. Aged 80. Some of you haven't memorized the first verse. <laughs> Scripture memorization, I was taught to do it. The reason I know my Bible so well, it's not owing to me. Don't brag on me. My parents, the way I was brought up. What a gift. In any case, the first verse, I think, anybody should memorize and I'm going to read it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, and the same Greek word means tried or tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So, these Men in a strange country are going to live by their convictions and they would not have a thing to do with the royal table. You know, I ask, uh, what is the equivalent to the king's table today? What would be the equivalent of that for some of you? Could it be uh, 
a job that is inconsistent with Christian principles? Would it be getting that prestigious job or invitation because you want it more than anything in the world? Caution. Be careful not to try to get something that you're not really qualified for. Remember, God never promotes us to the level of our incompetence. If you are in a job where you're unable to do it, chances are God didn't do that. Something else happened. Maybe it was your ambition. You're determined to have a job. It gives you more prestige. And according to the Peter principle, every person is promoted to the level of their incompetence. And so the people today generally have jobs they shouldn't have because a promotion took place and yet somebody had to, be, had to fill it. it. Happens in the church, by the way. There are pastors who are so ambitious that they want that bigger church, the more prestigious church. God may not put them there, but they somehow pull strings and they make it happen. And I would say to anybody, whether you're a minister, whether you're a layman, God will not promote you to the level of your incompetence. And if you're a little bit frustrated that there are better jobs out there, they would pay you more money and give you more prestige. God has done you a favor not to let you have it. It could be very, very humbling. But if you're not ready for it, is it worth it? And then fail or have a nervous breakdown? That's what often happens. Well, Learn to know what is the king's table in your life. Getting the prestigious job or keeping that chip on your shoulder. Can you give into that? You say, oh, this is what I'm home with. Holding a grudge and staying bitter all the time. Vindicating yourself. Don't ever do that. Don't do that. That would be eating from the king's table. Resolve not to defile yourself with the king's meat. Don't vindicate yourself. Let God do it. And what about sex outside heterosexual marriage? Just not on. I'm sorry. Well, these men were victimized. Yes. They were valuable. Yes. They were virtuous. But here's another thing. They were vulnerable men. That is, they put themselves on the line. And they were liable to be exposed, hurt, and embarrassed. Because here's what they did. When they were told, sorry, we cannot let you eat what you want. You're going to have to eat from the king's table. They resolved not to defile themselves with the royal food. But an official said, look here, I'm going to lose my job. I've got to make you eat these things. He said, what will happen if the king finds out that you are looking worse than the other men your age? And the king will have my head because they let you eat what you want. And so the man became vulnerable. So Daniel said to the guard and the official that were over these four men, please test your servants for 10 days. How about that? Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And the official says, 10 days, okay, 10 days. They were vulnerable men, liable to be exposed, hurt, embarrassed. You see, being vulnerable is to be true to your convictions and let your friends or your foes think you have lost your head. I've thought so many times, especially in preparing this sermon about my own background. Most of you will know I come from Kentucky. Some of you will know I was brought up in the Church of the Nazarene. And Nazarenes, as I grew up, were very strict, very. Would you believe that I was never allowed to go inside a cinema? Ever. Couldn't go see a movie, not even Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse. You don't want to go in because if Jesus comes, he's not going to come to a cinema looking for his people. And you don't want to be in a cinema when he comes. And uh, the only time I was allowed to go in a cinema is when uh, the English class were going to go to the uh, cinema to see Shakespeare's Hamlet. And my pastor gave my father permission for me to go see Hamlet. And I thought it was so fun. I mean, first time, is this what a cinema looks like? Well, I hope Jesus doesn't come to, at this moment. <laughs> my mother, godly woman, always wore hair in a bun, no makeup, no lipstick, earrings. <laughs> Dear me, that would be Jezebel. <laughs> no, no earrings. And the Nazarenes in those days enjoyed their religion. Some shouted. They walked the aisles crying, praise God. And you could hear them a block away. So when I go to school, I don't go to movies. I can't go to the school dances. And they all know about Nazarenes because the church is right in the middle of Ashland. Everybody knew about them. No, they, in fact, their nickname was Noiserenes. I was brought up that way. I never will forget this fellow student just down the road and say, Artie's a Nazarene, Artie's a Nazarene. It was just so embarrassing, it was awful. And then when my dad became a Gideon, my friend across the street, his name was John, Artie's dad's a Gideon, Artie's dad's a Gideon. I lived that way, brought up that way. And I wasn't popular in school. They all knew me, but, you know, I didn't get invited to the parties or the things. And I grew up like that. And yet, I look at my old yearbook, which I've done. You can't find my picture in it at all except one page in a big group. Third row, tenth from the end, there I am. But there were the other students. They got a full page. There was one called the man most likely to succeed. And that was my friend across the street. R.T.'s dad's a Gideon. <laughs> he died in his 30s of alcoholism after two divorces. And I could go down the line. All those that were so popular, be willing to be yourself. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
And so when you're true to yourself, they will may make yourself look stupid. You're vulnerable to misunderstanding, to ridicule, people laughing at you, peer pressure. It can be horrible. And I feel this for students going to where they are in school or in today's society. But this is a word for anybody. Have the courage to be what you are. You are in Christ. And so the princes in Babylon simply could not understand the request of these four men. It made no sense to them. And they just said, give us a chance. You know, it's, it's much the same way. The gospel makes no sense to the world. The gospel we uphold. Expect the world to believe this gospel. And I think of Paul's words, Romans 1.16. You know what he said? I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's it. I think there are those in the church today that are just a little bit ashamed of the gospel. And so some want to add, listen to this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the kingdom. Well, Paul would agree with that, but that's not what he said. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But you see, when you bring in gospel of the kingdom, that kind of destigmatizes the gospel because that includes signs and wonders and miracles and healing. And so it kind of makes it easier. But that's not what Paul said. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and added, it is the power of God for salvation. He might have added, it's the power of God for healing, because Paul believed in healing. He could have added, it's the power of God for signs and wonders. Paul believed in signs and wonders. But when he writes this big book of Romans, largest book in the uh, uh, largest of Paul's epistles, he just wants them to know I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel. And he made an interesting statement when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians. He said, I determined something before I came. You could imagine if he sent people ahead, tell me about Corinth. Uh, I'm going to be going to Corinth. And they would reply, well, Paul, Corinth is a is a, is a business city, and there are sophisticated businessmen there, very intelligent people. And so you want to appeal to their intellect. And, uh, well, Paul said, <laughs> I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If Paul had asked for advice on that, they'd say, stop, don't, don't mention crucifixion in Corinth. It's a Greek city. And everybody in those days knew about a crucifixion. It was the Roman way of punishment. Capital punishment. Only the scum of the earth got crucified. So Paul, stay away from that word. And Paul says, really? Well, he said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? why? Why be so stupid, Paul? Well, I wonder if you would know the answer. He's not simply digging his heels in or being stubborn. Do you know why Paul said that? I'll tell you. He knows that nobody can get saved unless they hear about the cross. He knows that. 
And in order for them to be saved, the Holy Spirit's going to have to work. And he thought, what can I preach that will cause the Holy Spirit to work? Jesus said, no one can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. So he says, what can I preach that will cause the Holy Spirit to kick in? I know, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he risked everything with a message that people would have said, don't preach that here. He says, I will. And God gave him a people, the two largest corpus of letters in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Don't compromise. Stand for what you believe, the courage to know what is right. And so, this gospel we uphold. And I guess I ask this question every time I come here. And there may be one person here, you've not heard me say this. So this is for you. Anybody here never heard me preach before? I won't ask for a show of hands because I'm not here to embarrass you. But I just want to say to you, if you've never heard me before, question. Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Do you know that? And if you were to stand before God, and you will. And he were to ask you, he might. Why should I let you into my heaven? Whatever would you say. So you're standing before God. It's the real thing. And you don't have somebody on the sidelines to coach you. No friend, no relative. Say, here's what you want to say. No. What would you say? God is saying to you, why should I let you in? And there's only one answer. What would you say? Well, I'll tell you what I would say. It's because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Christ and him crucified. That's the way you get to heaven. Did you think it was because you had to be a nice person? Being good? Going to church? Getting baptized? Don't help at all. Not only do they not help, they could hurt. Oh, how could they hurt? They hurt if you think they help. Because you're trusting in them. I've got one hope. Jesus died for me on the cross. And if that's not your hope, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. I close now. There's a fifth thing about these four men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were vindicated men. They were. Because after 10 days, they brought them in. And they looked amazing. They were healthier, better nourished than any of the young men who ate, uh, who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And they were vindicated. And to those four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams. God will honor those that honor him. And that said, to be fair, there are those that may not get vindication. This story has a happy ending. I'm thinking of those, they don't have a happy ending. They're not vindicated. You may die for what you believe instead of being rescued. As a matter of fact, you need to read Hebrews chapter 11. 
It talks about those who, through faith, did great things, conquered kingdoms, ministered justed, justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions. That's coming up in Daniel chapter 6. Quenched the fury of flames. That's coming up next week. Escaped the edge of the sword. But then, sadly, others were tortured. Refused to be released. Some faced jeers and flogging. Some were stoned, sawed in two, put to death by the sword. So you need to know that it's not always a happy ending. But in any case, I can tell you one thing, and I would go to the stake for this. <laughs> you live by this message today, you'll never be sorry. He that believeth on me will not be put to shame. And so these men were vindicated. And with reference to the authorities, the authorities said, you're, you're stronger than anybody here. With reference to their appearance, they were better looking. Their understanding was increased. They had autonomy. They had independent self-control. Because they were being themselves. Be what you are. You're a child of God. You don't need to be ashamed. Vindicated man. God loves to vindicate. But I have to say, vindication almost always takes a good while. But what God does is worth waiting for. I don't suppose anybody ever heard this song, to, but I grew up singing as a little boy. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. You have a gift nobody else has. Or here's a sweet little poem for you. There is some place for you to fill. Some work for you to do. That no one can or ever will. Do quite as well as you. It may lie close along your way. Some homely little duty. That only needs your touch. Your sway. To blossom into beauty. Psalm 37 verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn. The justice of your cause like the noonday sun. By the way, what was your answer a while ago, you, that I singled out? You know who you are. You've never been here before. And you've never been asked that question before. God says, why should I let you into my heaven? And I've given thee the answer. It's because Jesus died. And if you didn't have that answer in your heart, we can sort that out right now. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. You don't need to say it out loud. God will see your heart. But here it is. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. 
as best that I know how, I give you my life. That's the prayer.